If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to John's Gospel, or if you want to pull one of the Bibles that are in the pew rack in front of you, on page 1,128 is the text that I'll be reading, or you can just follow along on one of your digital devices or on the screen. Hopefully that covered everybody in the room. We are finishing this very first uh, chapter of John today. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's uh, Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was uh, from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke. Or wrote, a Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I I saw you under a fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. May God help us to understand this. His most precious word. This week, uh, Zach Miller had the staff uh, watch a podcast of a pastor who was teaching on embracing change. And uh, one of the things you couldn't not notice about this uh, pastor was that he was filled out. He was uh, buffed. He was into weightlifting. And uh, we know that because he told us he was. He All of his illustrations were about athletics and uh, looking uh, uh, really good in his workout regimen. And now, personally, that doesn't impress me because that is not me. I'm sorry if you were looking for a pastor who uh, spent time in the gym. That's accidental, not on purpose. 
My children will tell you that their dad is a nerd and he is that way on purpose and I proudly wear that uh, title. I love to read, so my illustrations don't tend to be about your workout routine. They tend to be about things I've read and one of the books that I was uh, reading over Christmas is a Paul Jennings biography of James Madison. Ooh, isn't that exciting? <laughs> Even for a history guy, James Madison is not way up there on the movers and shakers of the early uh, American uh, uh, presidents. In fact, he's kind of lost. He's uh, uh, sandwiched between uh, Thomas Jefferson, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, and uh, James Monroe, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, a about foreign policy that is still around even uh, to this day. And then there's this little James Madison who, before he became president, wrote the Constitution. And so he was famous for that. And, and it, he's mainly known for a war. He's the first war president, 1812 to 1814. But really, he's best known for his wife. And that's the way it should be anyway, Right. Dolly, not the inventor of Dolly little chocolate cakes that you can get, but Dolly Madison is primarily known as the person who preserved the painting of George Washington that was hanging in the White House when the British burned Washington, and particularly the White House. One of the things that James Madison was known for, at least that I knew when I took early American history was to be a a very indecisive person and and no explanation, just he's an indecisive person. And even in today's world, we don't look at that as great leadership, someone who is indecisive. But one of the things that Paul Jennings, I didn't tell you who he was. Paul Jennings was the man who actually carried uh, the painting out of the White House. He was a James Madison personal slave who isn't freed until after James Madison dies. He wrote, after he was freed, a biography of James Madison. And when he wrote the biography, he began to give you a picture into the way that James Madison thinks. And James Madison was a lawyer from Virginia. And as all good lawyers, they're able to argue a case. But what's unusual about James Madison is that James Madison would not only argue his side of the case, he would argue your side of the case better than you. Not to disprove you, but to understand you. And so often his followers, his supporters, tended to not know where he stood because often they couldn't tell whether he was arguing with them or against them when he was arguing. And in a brilliant mind that never stopped learning. We know that because Paul Jennings wrote about the last moments of James Madison's life. By then, Dolly Madison is um, uh, not uh, as much a caregiver. It's his niece. And Paul is caregiving on his last day. He's feeding him. And the niece notices that the countenance, his face, changes And so she asked him, what's wrong, uncle? And we have this in the biography. 
Paul says that he heard James Madison say, nothing's wrong, just a change of mind, my dear. Wouldn't it be great to be so open-minded that we are willing to question even our beliefs to see if they're true, even if we've held them for a lifetime? Enter Jesus. John has Jesus coming onto the scene when these original disciples had all kinds of assumptions and presumptions about Jesus, a lifetime of them. Generations passed down about who the Messiah would be. All they've heard is John say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world which is a reference to Isaiah 53 about the Messiah coming, they wouldn't have doubted that who the Messiah would be, but they doubted what the Messiah would do. You see, for generations, the Israelites, the Jews, had been under the boot of the Romans. For as long as that generation was alive, they have known nothing but the oppression of the Romans. And before the Romans, there were the Greeks. And before the Greeks, there were the Persians. And before the Persians, there were the Babylonians. For generation after generation, as long as they could remember, they have been under the oppression of someone, some government. And so instead of a Messiah coming to, to, to die for sins, to build a relationship between earthlings and heaven, he was coming to liberate them from their oppressors. And therefore they knew him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, but in the way of one who would liberate them and give them freedom. And so when John and Andrew, the very first two people who hear that announcement by John the Baptist, because we know they were the disciples of John the Baptist. We saw that last week. John is not going to, I know we're kind of confusing Johns, and that's why I'll use John the Baptist, the herald, and then John the writer of this, and just call him John. He he has a brother, James, and together they're the sons of thunder, There are two of the disciples of Jesus, but two of those followers of John the Baptist is Andrew and John. And one of the ways we know this is John is that John never refers to himself by his proper name in the gospel. Whenever he he refers to himself, he often will refer to him as no name like he does here, or he'll call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And before you think he's got an ego problem... That's just John's humility that he doesn't feel himself worthy to even print his name. And here they hear, behold, the Lamb of God. And before you think, man, they have imported all of the great knowledge and answers to the questions of who the Messiah is. No, they have no idea. In fact, they have the wrong idea. And so Jesus' invitation is for them to come and see. You see, we have so complicated discipleship in the 21st century. That we miss that discipleship at its core, at its ultimate definition, is simply someone who follows. And so he's saying, come, follow me. Keep following me and see for yourself who I am. I understand this might be your first day in church. 
and you're hearing for the very first time, it's okay to question and have have your assumptions about Jesus challenged. But it's also true if you grew up in the church. You might have an assumption about Jesus. You might have an idea about who He is that isn't true. And you've been relying on that for decades now. And the answer to both of you is simply to say, come and see for yourself. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a rational faith. That is, it's it's not irrational. Jesus never says, hey, come and blindly follow me. Trust me. You know how parents sometimes get a child and and you give the child some instruction and the child pushes back a little bit and says, why? And what do we parents often do when we get exasperated? I'm the parent. Just do as I say. That's another way of saying, trust me. I'm mom. I'm dad. Jesus never does that. He says, come and see for yourself. Follow me. You got questions? Good. Matter of fact, often I'm going to use a word to describe people with questions who are not yet followers, who are not yet seers. I'm going to call you a a, a skeptic, and I don't mean as a pejorative. I think that's a, a wonderful word. I think that is a compliment to you that you are more like these guys willing to follow in order to find out the answer. Seeking a better understanding, allowing your assumptions and presumptions to be challenged by the real Jesus. Some people reject a false Jesus, and that's a shame. A skeptic is a one who recognizes if I'm going to accept or I'm going to reject, it's going to be the real thing, not one that has been presented to me. Not, not one that simply I grew up with, but the one who reveals himself. That's what we're going to do here Over the next week by week, we're going to begin to show each other the real Jesus. Allow the scriptures, as Jesus describes himself, as he makes these claims, to challenge our thinking. And so if you're a a skeptic, you found a great place. Come and ask. Sit there, Sunday after Sunday, with your questions. And see. But let him confront you. Let him challenge your assumptions. What about us? Those of us who are already followers, already seers, already people who are following. Let me give you two challenges. One is simply allow Jesus to challenge your assumptions too. It doesn't do any good to say let him challenge the new people and not challenge us. That's not intellectually honest. To say we've got it and no new information. That is, I'm going to hold on to my caricature of James Madison and not not explore who the real person was. That's not historical honesty. And neither is it morally honest to say that I've got Jesus locked in. Nothing changes about my views. I don't think that's honest as well. But secondly, and I think this is just as important, is that you and I must learn to celebrate people different than us. I don't mean that like our culture. Let's be diverse. 
I mean that when you look around the room, there are people in this room that are not like you. They don't have the same beliefs you have. They don't have the same practices you have. And in some cases, they may not even look like you. And I'm not talking about tolerance. I think that's too low a standard to tolerate people that are different than me in a room. Or to say that we've got a place for people different, have different ideas. If you will just sit in the back and not cause a commotion, we'll let you stay here. But instead, celebrating, looking for them, looking every Sunday as a ministry to look around this room for someone who is different than you. And that simply might be if you're married, somebody that's single. If you're single, somebody who's married. It might be somebody who is old looking at somebody young, somebody young looking at somebody old. It could be just that simple. But engaging and telling somebody, we're glad you're here. Because we are. And so this morning, I just want to briefly look at two things. The invitations that Jesus gives in the implication for that invitation on us. First, I want you to, to notice the first invitations are to uh, uh, Andrew and John and then to Philip. And then they turn around and invite others. So there's two invitations that are at work here. First, you see in verse 40, the calling of Andrew. And I do believe it's John most most scholars, and I'm not one of them, but most people who study this know this is John, uh, the writer of this gospel. They hear the announcement, behold, the Lamb of God. That's short for what he had previously said in verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Rather than going back over that material, just a, get a, a download of last week's message and you'll get it. But he says, and... Uh, In uh, verse uh, 39, they began to follow Jesus, Andrew and John. And in fact, uh, later we'll see that Andrew will go for his brother and invite him. In uh, verse uh, 43, we see Jesus inviting uh, Philip uh, to follow. And the word follow, you know, I told you a couple of weeks ago that in uh, the original language that the Bible was written, they had six tenses, not three like we do. We've got past and present and future, but the Greeks were not limited by only three tenses. They have six. And one of the ones they have is a present participle in this idea of something that has ongoing effects. That is, I'm continuing to do it. And so when he says, follow me, he's not saying just follow me one time and until you're done, he says, keep following me. You're not going to figure this all out by one event, staying with me one night. You're not going to get this by coming to one worship service or attending one Bible study. This has got to be a lifelong pursuit. Keep following. And just as an aside, Jesus is never asking you to blindly do so. Just trust Him. Just do the work. Ask the question. Seek the real Jesus. They're already investigating at the very beginning by 
Who is this man? Even though they have no idea who he ultimately is, they don't know the real Jesus. They've got an idea that he's the Messiah and they've imported all of their assumptions, all of their presumptions into who the Messiah would be, the king who would liberate them. But they're going to follow to find out who he is because he's invited them to come and see. That is, you cannot follow without coming. That is, you don't follow what you don't first come to and see yourself. But notice there's a second invitation. Not only is Jesus inviting, but they're inviting. As a result, you, you have Andrew going to, to Peter, his brother, in a verse 40. And, and he, there's a prior existing relationship. Obviously, it's his brother. And he doesn't say, hey, hey, look here now. I, We've got this Jesus figured out and and uh, we've laid it out into an acronym called TULIP. And uh, I just want to tell you about uh, your depravity that is total. And, and then when you get to that, I want you to understand the unconditional election and, and the limited atonement upon the cross that's coming. They don't he doesn't give that to to uh, Peter because, quite frankly, he hadn't figured all that out himself. You see, there's a principle, I think, in ministry that we've talked about before that it's worth bringing up again. And that is what you're going to see is that they recognize that you belong before you believe, not believe before you belong. You see, there's not a list of of truths that you must attest to to be a follower, to be a disciple of Jesus, you don't yet have to believe everything about Jesus. They don't. They become his disciples even before they become Christians. You see, we tend to think that evangelism gets to the point where they're ready to be disciples. And and there's no such distinction in Scripture. They're followers, they're disciples, before they even understand what they're following. Therefore, they're belonging before they believe. That's a great ministry principle that we can all learn. That people can be part of our community. That people can come in here and have dinner with us and, and go to our, our Sunday school classes, be in our Bible studies before they ever believe. Because where's the best place for them to come and see if it isn't with God's people? Not only does Andrew go to Peter, but, and this is where I wanted to to give the most of our time, is Philip going to Nathaniel. As Philip goes to Nathaniel in verse 45, he says, hey, we've seen the the guy we've all been looking for, the ones that uh, uh, Moses and the law and the prophets have been all talking about. And do you remember what he says? He says, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember Nathaniel's response in verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, before you began to say, well, Nathaniel, he's a little bigoted. He might be even a, a, a little um, uh, superior in the way in which he is arguing against Jesus. Well, this is the way we are. He's, you're just seeing the first century version of neighborhood jealousy 
or neighborhood superiority. We've got a phrase called, they're from the other side of the tracks. But Nathaniel's the first one who's uttering that. You see, Jerusalem considered themselves superior to everyone. If you lived in Jerusalem, you're in the in crowd. You're the influencer. You have the power. You're intellectually in. You get it. And those people out in the suburbs, those people out there in the rural areas, they don't get it. They're not with us yet. They're not influencers. They're not movers and shakers. What is he talking about? See, Nazareth is in Galilee. And Galilee was viewed as a little bit less sophisticated, a little less important, a little less get there. And you say, well, Nathaniel has no room to talk. He's from Galilee. Yeah, but he's from the better neighborhoods of Galilee. And so what happens when Jerusalem looks down on the good neighborhoods of Galilee? What do they do? Do you think they, they say, oh, you got it all wrong? No, they look at the other neighborhoods of Galilee and they say, well, you don't have, yes, Jerusalem, they're the in crowd, but we're really close to the in crowd, which makes you Nazarenes way out. That's what he's saying. We do the very same thing. When we began, those of you who are from downtown of Annapolis and you're the real in crowd, right? But you people who live in Arnold, come on. And then you look down at Cape St. Clair with your nose up. We do the very same thing that Nathaniel's doing. He's saying there's no way this Jesus of Nazareth, he's got all the answers to the big questions of today, of life. They don't, if you said a rabbi from Jerusalem had that, I would believe it. But you say a rabbi from Nazareth? At least let him come from the northern suburbs of Galilee. Not from Nazareth. That's what he is saying. Today, the way we do that is that when someone says something that is so out of accord with what we believe, we just what? We roll our eyes. When someone makes a statement that we know not to be possible, we roll our eyes. We dismiss the idea and we dismiss the person. But let me tell you what happens when you dismiss someone. You cut off the only opportunity you to have to find out if it's true. If you, you see the circular argument? If Jesus is from Nazareth, therefore he cannot have answers to the big questions of life. I've cut him off so that I'll never find out if he has answers to the big questions of life because I said it couldn't happen. You see the circular argument there impede you from ever getting the answers. If you're a skeptic here today and you think there's no way that great teacher from the first century really could be who he claims to be, you've cut yourself off from finding out if it's true. And it's a circular argument, and I don't think it's very intellectually honest. But I think the other thing that happens when we roll our eyes at Jesus, we sever the living taproot to what we probably, many of us, have as our core values. 
Where in the world do you get the idea that we're supposed to love our enemies? Every culture before Jesus believed that you can love your neighbor, you can love your friends, you can love your family, but not your enemies. How about the image of God, dignity of all mankind? Where in the world do you think Thomas Jefferson got the idea that all men are created equal? From Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Let us create man in our image. Every human being on the face of the planet is created in the image of God and therefore has dignity and rights. How about taking care of the poor and the needy? Where do you get that core value? If it wasn't from God. How about the concept of grace? Every religion on the face of the planet says you want a right relationship, you want a relationship with God, then do this. Do these things and you can have a right relationship with God. Don't do these things and God's going to get you. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says you can't do it. Standards here, you can't meet it, so God's going to do it himself. And he's going to give it to you by faith. Free. That's the definition of grace. Where do we get the concept of grace from? And when we cut ourselves off from Jesus, when we roll our eyes at the guy from Nazareth, we cut our, we sever the taproot from where it all comes from, where those values emanate from. Nathaniel is told to come and see for himself. Take a look at the man from Nazareth again. That's what I'm asking you to do. Over these next weeks, we're going to keep looking at this man from Nazareth. As long as you don't roll your eyes and dismiss him, be open to seeing the real Jesus, I think that if we're honest, he's going to challenge our presuppositions. It doesn't matter whether you've been in our church for the last 50 years, or this is the first time you've ever set foot in this place, he's going to challenge all of our assumptions about him. Now, some of them we're going to find out to be true, and others we're going to find out that we're false. I cannot prove Christianity to you. No one can. But I can show you the reasons that is reasonable to believe it. And the truth is... If you're a skeptic here today, you can't remain a skeptic forever. Not forever. That robs you of any hope and any joy. Look at verses 47 through 49 and then we have to be done. 47 through uh, 49 is the encounter between Jesus and Nathanael. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree. You do not believe you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus is asking Nathaniel to not just follow him, but follow him back to Genesis 28. Verse 51 is a quotation from Genesis 28, verse 12. And the fact that, that he would even call Nathaniel an Israelite 
is to say you are a follower of the original Israelite. He's talking about Jacob. Jacob, one of the fathers of, uh, of Judaism, the father of the Jewish race. He stole his brother's birthright, Esau. And because of that, Esau wanted to kill him. And so he had to run. His mother said, go live with my brother uh, Laban. Run. And so while he's running, he gets, he gets tired. He gets weary. He gets hopeless. And so he lays down to go to sleep. This is what we do when we get so depressed. We just want to sleep. And Jacob goes to sleep. And while he's asleep, God gives him a vision of a ladder from heaven to earth. And up and down this ladder come angels. And what he's communicating is this. You think you're alone? You think you're weary? You think you're out of sorts? No. Just as those angels are coming up and down, I am with you. I am with you always. And I'm going to change your name, Jacob. You were a liar. You were a deceit. Now you're going to be called Israel. One who wrestles with God. And everyone who follows you will be an Israelite. That's what he's saying about Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you are a follower of Jacob. And because you follow me, because you come and see, because you're a skeptic and you've got a great question, you're going to see greater things than that parlor trick of me telling you I saw you under a fig tree. What could he possibly see that's greater than omniscience? All-knowing, he tells you. He uses both singular and plural verses of you. He says in verse 50, I saw you on a fig tree and you believe you will see greater things than these. You're going to see something greater than what I just did. Then he's going to use second person plural. Truly, truly, I say to you, you, everybody, is going to see greater things. Because this angels that have come up and down on a ladder, it's not Jacob's ladder, which is what we've always thought. It's me. If you come and follow me, if you come and see for yourself, you get me. Not the me of the Messiah who's going to liberate you from the Romans, but the me who's going to liberate you from your sin and death. Come and follow me. That's what he's saying. Don't settle for Jesus less. You know how that works. We've got so many diet drinks. You've got, you, you've got diet Coke and, uh, you've got, uh, Coke zero. And then you, then you, I, I just started the Coke life. It's a little less than not the real thing. Matter of fact, it can't even call itself the real thing anymore because it's not the real thing. Jesus is saying, don't ask for Jesus less. Ask for the full bodied 200% proof, Jesus. But the only way to get that is you got to come. You got to come and follow. You got to come and ask your questions. And then you see that Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. You get me. Not some idea, not some beliefs to attest to, but me. A relationship with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For the men and women and children in this room, some of them are are young and they've got these questions about you. And in often cases, they're just not answered. Not sufficiently to where they understand. Others, Father, are in this room, been in this room for years. 
and they've got some assumptions about you that have challenged them in the way in which they live. It doesn't really measure up to reality for them. And then you've got, Father, you know it, people in the room who've got great questions who don't know much about you. Help us all to follow. Help us all to be your disciple by coming and seeing ourselves to see you. Challenge our assumptions. Help us to believe in Jesus' name. Amen.